debate. It's a lost art form, especially in regards to soccer during the internet age. This is why the First Eleven exists. The First Eleven pits pseudo-soccer journalists against each other in a battle for the ages. Here, the week's arbitrarily named Top Eleven American Soccer Issues are laid out. Our panelists pick a side and debate ensues. There are no winners. There are no losers. There are no points awarded. There is just reverently irreverent discourse over primarily ridiculous topics that deserve our discussion, or at least rambling opinions of the otherwise ignored. So prepare to be simultaneously amused and agreed. This is the first eleven. All right, we are live, which is really weird to say because this is not pickup soccer. Welcome to episode who really knows of the first 32. 32. Is it really? 32. 32. We almost made it a full year before we took in you know, a three months sabbatical. Yeah. Uh, I'm calling this one the first 11 in the gritty reboot because everything needs a gritty reboot. Anyway, uh, this is Abram Chamberlain. I'm the one in the U.S. men's national team jersey with half a dozen scarves hanging behind me, and that is Evan Reem, who looks like a home homeless vagabond recording on YouTube. What's going on, Evan? Well, I haven't worked in a couple weeks, so so it's understandable. But yeah, but yeah, I I, I would I would say that that's a fairly accurate uh, depiction. And now for our you know listener or listener uh, to finally see what I look like, I'm I'm sorry. I mean, not really, but no, I I highly <laughs> doubt anyone's listening to this live, and hopefully no one is because they're gonna find out that the way the sausage damn bad. All right, so we're going to start this one. <laughs> We're going to jump this one. We're going to jump right in with this one, uh, talking about our good buddy, Frill. Now, a whole bunch of things have gone down recently in New York City in the borough of the Bronx and the borough of Manhattan and the borough of wherever the hell MLS is located. Frank Lampard apparently signed for MLS. And it was noted by a lot of people that when the salaries came up for last year, he was on the list of salaries. So everyone was kind of worried about, well, how much is he getting paid? Turns out that Frank Lampard never actually signed with MLS, but rather signed with Manchester City FC, with plans on eventually making it to MLS. Which is kind of funny, considering that Manchester City, I'm sorry, New York City FC, decided to <laughs> build its entire marketing campaign around <coughs> playing in New York City for New York City FC. Number one in our first 11 says, someone is at fault Lampard fiasco, but it is certainly not MLS. You know what I I want to do? I want to go to a uh, uh, a pre Lampard New York City FC home game next year and wear one of those shirts that says Frankie says relax, and just see what happens. Um, but not that I own a shirt like that. But I I mean I have to disagree with this. This is totally the fault of MLS, not only MLS but um, Manchester City Football Club because you have an organization, Manchester City. I, I said Manchester City, right? And I meant New York City. It's, you see the the and uh, you you had a uh, Freudian slip earlier as well. So it's clear to me that when you're thinking about New York City FC, you're really thinking about Manchester City Football Club. And the thing is, is that I don't really don't know how much um, how much the, the the club actually cares right now because they blatantly lied to their to their fans to the fans that. They maybe did or didn't have earlier this season. It seemed like um, people were really skeptical whether or not this team was actually going to happen, um, or whether sorry whether or not it was going to be supported well. And then you know they have that figure that's been going out there over eleven thousand season ticket holders. But then those a lot of the majority of those season tickets were sold on the assumption that Frank Lampard would be there, right? And MLS. They knew, they knew about this. I mean, obviously the 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 teams the players signed contracts with. Um, the league, not each individual team. That's how MLS works. And so to say that it's not MLS's fault is to say that MLS didn't know that this was happening when they clearly did, in fact, know that this was happening. And I don't know. It just, it just, the situation stinks with me. It's like they got rid of Chivas USA this last year, and then just added another team exactly like Chivas USA, but on the East Coast. Yeah, I, what I'm concerned about with this is, and you sort of hit this uh, exactly, is MLS clearly knew what was happening. So. How can they justifiably go about and allow New York City FC to advertise this way? Okay, I, I understand that, and I'm thinking back of this now, and most of the advertisements were sort of based around David Villa, who is indeed playing for New York City FC at the beginning of this year. But a lot of this was built about around Frank Lampard. I'm not totally sure 
if MLS is to blame for this. I think they're partially to blame for this. I think that the idea of being blinded by the $100 million is part of it. But when I did the whole thing, the whole entire story comes down to is, did we need a second New York team? We probably never did. But we got one anyway. So if you're going to build this second New York team that no one was asking for, except for the Borough Boys who decided to go with uh, the Cosmos, then why not make sure they do this correct? Why not, I don't know, not tell anyone that Frank Lampard's signing and then have it be a big surprise, surprise signing in the summer window? I, I get that Frank Lampard is probably up there. Maybe obviously not Beckham. He's obviously not Henri. But he's up there. He's a well-known face. He's going to sell tickets. I'm not really sure who to blame. I, I Actually, you know what? I do know who to blame. I'm absolutely, and I think we're talking about this later, but I'm 100% blaming financial fair play for this. I really, really, really believe that they are starting to show, as you said earlier, this is going to be used just like Chivas USA, with the exception that they're going to use this with, uh, as Chivas USA, clearly as their reserve team, because they're trying to find a way to skirt around the financial fair play rules and if that's taking players on loan or never signing players and lying about, where, lying about where players are signed, then it's Manchester City's fault. MLS is not innocent in this, but I don't think it's completely their fault, and they're not really ever going to come out and say anything against Manchester City FC or Sheikh Mansour because that's a shit ton of money. All I, yeah, all I know is that um, two things. First of all, you know, they had the whole don't cross the line campaign and then you don't cross the line unless someone gives you $100 million, clearly. Uh, the second thing, um, on December 2nd, I believe it was December 2nd, during the State of the League address, uh, Don Garber explained that transparency was going to be a bigger thing that they were going to try and work towards in 2015, and already right off the bat it's been four days um, into 2015, and we have not seen any sort of transparency whatsoever. Um, so moving on to uh, number two on the first on the first eleven, um, we had a great article come out um, a couple. It was a uh, looks like last week on December thirtieth on the website Soccer Gods by um, and I apologize if I butcher the name by uh, Maridi uh, Marungi. Am I saying that right, Abram? Do you know? You saying that correct? Okay. Yeah. All right, and it, uh, not Meg Radio. Oh, yeah, at Nutmeg Radio, um, and it was titled Remembering 2014, American Soccer's Defining, uh, sorry, Deafening Silence in the Face of Sports New Activism, and what they argue, uh, sorry, the uh, article went on to argue essentially was that, um, you know, we saw a bunch of a bunch of activism in sports this year, right, with going to the Rams players uh, doing the um, hands up, don't shoot uh, in protest of the Ferguson incident, as well as um, the I can't breathe T-shirts and everything like that, which actually made it all the way over to Germany. It seemed like there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of activism in sports, right? And what this article goes on to say is that um, is that that was sort of absent in American soccer, and one of the reasons for that is because the whole idea of um, well, not the whole idea, but the whole institution of American soccer is very, very, very whitewashed, so to speak, in, in the sense that there are there's not a lot of diversity in, in American soccer. Yes, there's diversity because, you know, the league has players from all different countries, but, I mean, there are no African-American or um, any, I don't think any uh, Latino general, general managers or high league executives other than maybe Nelson Rodriguez. And as far as coaches, the great majority of them, and all the American coaches are are um, white, I think, or Caucasian, or however you want to say it. And I think the idea is that there really isn't a large minority presence in MLS, and that's something that needs to change if um, if, if the league hopes hopes to grow and hopes to um, gain the attention of the inner city uh, inner city kids. And so I don't know. I don't, it's not so much of a of a point uh, that we're going to agree or disagree with, I guess. But I guess Abram, like, what are, what are your thoughts on the article and the um, the the whole situ the situation as a whole. Uh, we we had an interesting conversation sort of off air, and it took us a while to sort of frame how to discuss this. It's it's interesting to me, uh, and I, I actually I spoke. I say spoke. I tweeted back and forth a little bit with Maridi on this article when it came out, and my argument on this was less so about the lack of activism in soccer and just sort of how MLS in general falls on the scale of importance, where 
on one hand, you have Eddie Johnson and Amobi Okugu, who are the two players he specifically talked about in his article coming out and tweeting. But the fact of the matter is no one cares. Outside of the very small bubble of people who are MLS fans, forget about American soccer fans, let's deal with just MLS fans, they, it's not something that's going to make as big an impact as a Derrick Rose or a LeBron James wearing an I Can't Breathe t-shirt. But I do think the point that we were talking about off-air, the idea of American soccer being a predominantly white structure, because it is, it leads to this sort of absence when it comes to very strong political issues, especially ones that have to deal with the idea of race or socioeconomic status, which we're bet on with both the um, the Eric Garner and you know going all the way back to Trayvon Martin. Any of those cases sort of deal with not just race but also socioeconomic class. And when you look at the the makeup of not just the teams, but if you look at the makeup of supporter groups, it, it's sort of the same thing. Um, I know I'm one of two or three minority members of my American Outlaw group. I know I've talked with Stephen Bailey about some, uh, Stephen Bailey, um, who is, I'm trying to remember what his Twitter hashtag, King, who is white and who joined me out of Boston and moved down to the South. There's been some interesting things done by supporters groups sort of around which they're not racist, but they have sort of the, the tinge of racism to them. It's definitely building upon stereotypes. And when you go to, when I've gone to American Outlaw gatherings, both in Boston and in Mobile, Alabama, and in Providence, and in Pensacola, Florida, and in Birmingham, some of the, the things that are sort of whispered instead lead to that sort of outsider feeling that you can get when you are not 100% white sitting within these audiences. Now, I'm not saying that people are racist. And I think there's a totally different line between being racist and having inclinations towards people, stereotyping people, stereotyping other teams and think that, hey, we're talking about the Mexican national team, so it's okay for us to call them wetbacks. Well, no, no, it's not, because if you're playing a team from Africa, there's just some words that you are certainly not going to say. And I, I think that comes, it, it goes to this whole idea, as you said, of there are not a lot of black, and I use the term black, I don't use the term African-American, because players like are not African-American, he's German and black. Players like Julian Green are not African-American, they're German and black. But I think that not having a lot of black or really Latino players on the national team in roles where we look at them as big, where we look at them as important, that hurts. And you were talking earlier about the idea, which I had never thought about before, or I have thought about before I've actually even written about it, this idea of soccer is so expensive. Outside of maybe hockey and lacrosse, it is the most expensive sport to play at the youth level. It's more expensive to play than football. It's more expensive to play than basketball. And that sort of cuts off an entire range of people who may want to come and may want to give a shot at playing because they can't afford it or they don't want to afford it or players that look like them just don't play at the highest levels. And when the highest level in this case, I want to get back to that, is MLS, not European soccer, because there are plenty of, obviously, Latino, Hispanic, African, African, American, African players that do play over in Europe and play at very high levels. Yeah, and uh, I mean, <clears throat> if American soccer has one player from the inner city who sort of made it, and that was one of the players you mentioned who was Eddie Johnson, but you know, I mean, what, is, what has Eddie Johnson done in 2014? Where, what did he do in 2014? I mean, not much. He went from being uh, probably... Um, seemed like a near lock to the for the World Cup team. I mean, he scored in their in the game where they clinched against Mexico, but and then um, he signed a designated player contract at DC United. Didn't have a very good season, and um, now no one's really really talking about him, even though he was a huge deal ten years ago. And the interesting thing about Eddie Johnson's upbringing is that likely the only reason that he made it was because not because uh, you know he was able to flourish in the inner city and flourish with his skills. It was because another family who could pay for his soccer bills took him on and he was able to get 
into the camps that developed his skills most. It wasn't that he developed on the streets, it's that he developed in the camps, he just that his funding came from a, t uh, a family who was well off, I guess. And that's a problem. <clears throat> and I, I think we've sort of drifted a little bit away from it, but I, going back to, to Maridi's article, it's that idea of, I think the argument he was making, and I, I should email him to see if we can get him on Pick Up Soccer tonight, but I think the argument he made, and I could be wrong, was that there just isn't activism in American soccer. There isn't activism in MLS more specifically. I'm not sure that's true. I think that this is happening out of season, and I think that this is happening with such a small subset, subset of soccer that we can't really tell whether or not there is this activism aware. And another part of the argument that he made, which needs to be pointed out, is that MLS itself whitewashes, and I'm using whitewash in the term of literally not making everything more white, but in terms of making everything more, how would you put this, more easy to, easy to swallow for most viewers. They, they try to sort of take element out of the game. They don't want that element there. They don't want people uncomfortable with their product. Yeah, and, and just really quick, because we've been talking about this for a while, that is a very important subject. One of the things that MLS has done a very good job in um, was um, advocating, uh, and it, uh, the players have done great activism for the um, uh, the LGBTQA. Uh, I'm sorry, there's there are a lot of uh, uh, letters in the acronym. LGBTQ. Um, yes. LGBTQ. Okay. I'm sorry. I, I LGBT. apologize. I, LGBT. I've heard, there we go. I, I've heard it referred to um, multiple ways. My one of my uh, teach teachers who I work with on uh, social justice says that it's now the um, being called just an overall encompassing as the queer community. Um, I apologize if I'm getting anything wrong, but M MLS has been very good with that. Obviously, um, fans have had tr shown tremendous support towards Robbie Rogers, but also MLS is one of the first leagues to really take a stand towards um, heterosexist slurs, you know, suspending Alan Gordon, um, uh, who were the other players, uh, was Mark Birch and um, Colin Clark for um, the variety of different slurs that were used in different manners, which before was fairly unprecedented in a sports league in this country. So I, I, MLS must be applauded for that and the way that the players are standing up to um, that sort of thing. It's just that they're... That's sort of the only activism I think that we're seeing in MLS right now, I guess, I would say. Uh, let's, let's move on to our next topic, and this is live, so I'm obviously losing this point. All right, here we go. So what, moving on to a slightly, or you, know, you really don't get much more heavy than that last article, but moving on to the next one, over on the opposite side of Florida from me is the mighty city of Jacksonville, Florida. Jacksonville is the largest land-wise size city in the United States of America. Yet they only have one professional team, which are the Jacksonville Jaguars. And as Evan said, are they really a professional uh, football team? Probably not. Um, anyway, Jacksonville has done a good job of sort of building up their following in the local community. They got a sponsorship from Winn-Dixie on their shirt. Their jerseys aren't great, but, you know, whatever. They've got a pretty sweet logo. Back in July, they sold 2,000 tickets, which is approximately – 2,000, excuse me, season tickets, which is approximately half of their current stadium where they're going to be playing. Uh, when you look at U.S. men's national team games that are in Jacksonville, they always sell out. When they played at the Jaguar Stadium this summer against, I believe it was Nigeria, I apologize if that was wrong, they were at capacity for that NFL stadium, which was over 60,000 people there. The time before that, when they played Scotland, they were very close to that as well. Uh, their supporters group, the First City Syndicate, was around prior to the team. This is not like a certain group that we'll be talking about later who didn't exist until after the team. Uh, anyone I've talked to in Florida, and I am all the way over in Pensacola, which is a huge, and I wish I knew this, since it's an eight-hour drive from Jacksonville, even people there are talking about the Jacksonville Armada. Number three on our first 11 sets, Jacksonville might not do exactly what Sacramento did, but they'll come pretty damn close. So, and this will be easier for you to talk talk about on the 
Jacksonville side of things, given that I do not live in the South. And I don't, I've never been to Jacksonville. I don't know too much about it. Um, I do like their season ticket numbers, which is 2,000, which is, uh, it's that's a fairly good number, I think, especially if, uh, for an inaugural season. You know, they haven't played any uh, any games yet. I think they only have six or seven players of uh, <coughs> sorry, whom they've signed, but I do know a lot about, obviously, uh, Sacramento. And Sacramento, it was lightning in a bottle, in, in a sense. I mean, Sacramento was probably one of the most successful expansion franchises I've seen at any level in the United States. And you, you have to think about it. They sold out every single home game except for one, and the one home game they didn't sell out, which they, they brought 17,414 fans. But when they... Um, uh, moved to Bonnie Field, their soccer-specific stadium. They sold out every single game, and they had so much demand for tickets that they're expanding the stadium this year, I believe, to uh, 10,500 um, seats, and they ex- I, I believe they expect to sell out every single home game again this year. Furthermore, within one year, Sacramento went from being not only talked about at all, even at the USL Pro level, to being a finalist for an MLS expansion um, city. And, and not only that, their results were great on the field as well. They won the championship in their first year. So, I mean, Jacksonville Armada, it seems like they're doing a couple of great things, but, you know, I was I was even skeptical of Sacramento Republic FC both on and off the field until I went to at least a couple games. So I think it's too early to tell uh, how, how successful they'll be and if they'll come even anywhere close to what Sacramento did last year. Because in my mind, what Sacramento did last year is probably the most successful thing that they could have done without actually um, garnering an MLS expansion. Yeah. So I want to I want to correct myself quickly. Uh, I said it was about half their their stadium that they sold out. The the current number for the stadium that they're going to play in, which is the and I've lost the name of it, uh, the Jacksonville Baseball Grounds, which makes me a little bit uncomfortable, is eleven thousand people. I don't know how you know I've never a big fan of baseball players or just me soccer games at baseball field. But looking looking at their team, um, and you you said that they only they have I believe looks like about seven players signed so far. They signed the Orlando City goalkeeper uh, Miguel. I'm pro- I will butcher this last name, and I apologize, but I butcher names. That's my thing. Uh, Miguel Gallardo. I probably I don't know how close that that's is. Right. He was the Gallardo, he was yeah. a, wow, nice. Hey, good name. All right, but he he was the Orlando City goalkeeper for all three years that they were in USL Pro. Orlando City now, of course, is the as Evan put it earlier, Philadelphia Union South. They just can't keep enough goalkeepers. Uh, they also signed uh, Jaime Castrillon, so that's another former MLS player. Did barely you know fairly well, and they signed Jamal Johnson. So these are three pretty good players to build a team around. Now it's only eight players altogether, but that's you know more than New York City FC has, and some of their players aren't actually signed with them. Um, anyway, I, I I really do believe that Jacksonville has something going. I believe that they're going to build themselves up to be a huge team, not just for Jacksonville, but for that surrounding area, maybe as far up as Savannah, Georgia. And if you look at Savannah, Georgia, that could be, should be, and probably is a pretty good soccer market that may not want to make the drive out to Atlanta to either the Silverbacks or unnamed Atlanta team. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about in addition to this is there's, there's there was an article written I want to say last week uh, by an SB Nation blog site called The Main Event, which is an Orlando City blog site, saying it was time for Orlando City to make a move on Jacksonville and on Tampa Bay. And I found that very interesting. One, because if you're a soccer fan in Tampa Bay, I assume you're already a Rowdy supporter. And Rowdy supporters are not going to support Orlando. I sort of feel the same way about Jacksonville. I feel that same way about the First City Syndicate. They get very intense talking about this team, which, like New York City FC, doesn't exist yet. But I do believe that with that passion, and that's where that's where the Sacramento attention came from. That Sacramento attention came from the Tower Bridge Battalion, whose name I'm not sure I got right either. But this First City Syndicate group is a supporters group that, one, looks like they know what they're doing, and two, looks like they're already passionate about this team. They've been passionate about this team since before it was announced. Once it was announced, they're clearly going to defend it. And I do think that they are going to build something special in Jacksonville. Now, I'll probably be absolutely wrong later on, but as of this precise moment, I really feel strongly, and I'm going to make it to at least one Jacksonville game this year, but I feel very strongly that Jacksonville is going to maybe not sell out every game, maybe not even average 8,000 fans a game, 
But I think if they can push 5,000 fans in a season, we're going to be talking about them as MLS team 25, 26, 27. And that would be a, that would be a good number. That'd be a good number for NASL. That'd be a good number for uh, any league outside of MLS. Um, I do want to just reiterate what you said. It really is all about the supporters group. You know, um, we didn't know if there would be support for Sacramento Republic FC, and then the Tower Bridge Battalion, which the name you did get correct, um, was established, and it was an already it, 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 because there was already an existing AO Sacramento. Um, it wasn't very hard to get people uh, surrounded and get get uh, people brought to the idea of supporting a club team. In fact, it was very easy. But then once you see, hey, you have a bunch of these crazy guys, they're doing something, that looks like fun. One, more people want to come. And two, the team, the team can and will market itself as a great fan experience because of your supporters group. And it's really, it seems like the only way to grow from there is exponential, but it's all about the supporters group. I mean, that's why uh, you see teams that are very successful, like, you know, Sacramento, and that's why other teams in, in the in various different leagues haven't been as successful. I mean, who wants to go to a game if no one's going to be there? Or who wants to go to a lower division soccer game if there isn't a great fan experience associated with it? Because, I mean, you're not going just to watch great soccer, you know? Um, yeah, but, and I, sorry, just before, just quickly, because we got to get our arbitrary uh, Northern Guard shout out here, is that idea of uh, Detroit City FC who pulls, you know, 5,000, 5, I believe, was their last number, 5,000 fans a game. And part of that is to see Division Four soccer, but a huge part of that is to watch the Northern Guard. And I think that was the same deal with the Tower Bridge Italian, and I think that's going to be the same deal with the First City Syndicate. And I think that group is going to do well in the attention to that team because in addition to that, have you ever been to Jacksonville, Evan? No. There's not a whole lot to do in Jacksonville, especially <laughs> in the summer, other than go to the beach. So if you're not at the beach, might as well go watch some soccer and some crazy guys lighting off smoke flares and the like. I'm sure there's great weather. Um, moving on. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, international soccer. Obviously, the big news with um, recently was the uh, the switch, the the nationality switch, FIFA nationality switch of Gideon Zalalem. Well, he got his U.S. citizenship, and he's reported to be on his way um, to uh, representing the U.S. at some level. Should the U.S. Uh, contact which I, which I imagine they will at first at the youth level because he's still an Arsenal um, bench player, I guess. But anyway, on uh, number four on the first eleven says that uh, Ab well Abram, our gregarious co-host, uh, said. Terrence Boyd would never play for the USMNT. Abram said that Julian Green would never play for the USMNT. At USMNT. Abram said that Gideon Zalalem would never play for the USMNT. Abram should go on record as saying no dual U.S. international with any sort of talent will ever play for the USMNT. Um, yeah, first off, let me say, my bad. Um, apparently with Jurgen Klinsmann, anything is possible. Um, I... Yeah. Uh, uh, let uh, let me start this way, which is, let's not build this kid up into anything yet. Um, I, I wish I knew. I believe it was um, and I can't think. I believe it was friendly foe also on soccer gods. Which, by the way, if you're not regularly look reading things on that website, you really should because that is one of the best websites out there. The soccer god website. He wrote this whole hysterical article about Gideon Zalem about how. He doesn't know what he's going to bring to the table, but he knows it's a big deal that he signed to the U.S. that he signed or he switched nationalities, and that's that's sort of how I'm feeling right now. Which is I don't know what he is. I don't know if he's a winger. I don't know if he's a support striker. I don't know if he's that number ten. I know he can pass the ball well. I've listened to you know tons of things. I've watched grainy YouTube video on him, but I have no idea what this kid can do. I just know that he's supposed to be special. The one thing that I'm very happy about with this player. And the one thing that I think is being demonstrably overlooked is the idea that this is a product of the American development system. This is a kid who played youth soccer in America for a long time. Yes, he played in Germany when he was, I don't know, five or six, but he's been in America. He was in America from, I think they said, age six to age 16, maybe. And during that time, he was playing for youth teams in D.C., not the D.C. United Academy, but the D.C. United Academy obviously had an eye on him, but that he was playing for youth teams, the same youth teams that we're always looking down on and saying how terrible they are for soccer. And that's how he was scouted by Arsenal. That's how he was found by Arsenal. And if he signed, it's a bigger deal than when Julian Green, who had no development, 
in the United States. This is a kid who was developed not solely, but hugely in the United States, or at least to the point where he was able to get over to Arsenal. I think it's a big deal. I think that anyone will be able to, and maybe not anyone, but I think Klinsman has a better track somehow of getting these guys to come over. I'm just going to be curious to see how he is. And I, I used to probably be using the games. I think he's going to be on the Gold Cup roster, and I think people are going to lose their ever-loving minds, even if he doesn't play at all during that tournament. One, that sounds about right. Uh, two, I just sent you a direct message on Twitter. Would you care to read it aloud? Uh, you have sure. The, you have the Twitter open? Uh, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me find the Twitter. You go ahead and let's see what we got. Uh, no, go ahead. Why don't you read it to me because I'm logged into about eight different accounts. And I can't oh, you're logged into it. Right. The, me- the message I sent you, well, you're going to have to repeat after me. Are you ready? Hold on, hold on. Ready? Let me find it. Let me find it. All right, all right, all right. Uh, we're, we're doing this live, so it's going to be hard. Yeah, but, I mean, it's not like anyone's watching, so we'll just edit it later. We don't know. We got one viewer right now. We do? Uh, let's find it. Thanks, Mom. Yeah. <laughs> all right. It says, <laughs> Giuseppe Rossi will never play for the USMNT. Nevin Sabotic will never play for the USMNT. Well, I guess they're going to switch their nationalities pretty soon then. Looks like uh, looks like we have we have two new players. <laughs> Jesus. All right. I think I'm the next one. Now, normally we would take a break here, but since we're doing this as a live show for our one viewer, we're going to push through this mofo. All right. Um, I've been talking recently. Uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave him anonymous. I've been talking recently with some people in NPSL or people who have worked with NPSL. Most of them have been telling me that. In order for team to get into NPSL now, they're going to have to have some sort of affiliation with a local youth team. So number five on our first 11 says, the NPSL is moving away from standalone clubs and towards a model where every club must be basically the senior team of a youth team. This move makes no sense when the biggest successes in NPSL are Detroit, Tulsa, and Chattanooga who are all standalone teams. I disagree because while those teams are good successes, there are a couple things that I think are really interesting with incorporating a youth model. The first of which is, um, and it's, it, unfortunately, uh, you know, as we talked about this before the show, the, the soccer pyramid in the United States is, you know, the wrong way. You know, basically it's pay to play rather than uh, you play, and then if you're good, you get paid, uh, which is the way it should be run, which is the way it's run in Europe, which is, but it's also not possible right now to do that based on the infrastructure, but I think um, have an NPSL team with a youth club attached would probably have more financial stability than um, than one without, because if you are still collecting fees from the youth players, right, and you are still uh, getting some source of income, even if you aren't necessarily super successful on and off the field, then it, it seems like the team will be less likely to go away, just as such as your team um, uh, did this past uh, year. Sorry to bring that up, but then the second thing that I like is, you know, if you if you if you're in a youth club, right? Say say there was an NPSL team in Davis where I live, and we have a great program in Davis called the Davis Legacy. It's a great youth program, but it would be so cool to grow up. Right, and you know, you would play your youth games, and then maybe on Saturday nights you would go and watch the first team play, right? And first team play fourth division, and you would get to know the players, and the players would probably be involved in the club as uh, coaches, um, as administrators, or whatnot. It would be really cool, to, you know, if you had your kids five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, who went to these games every single week, and were like, you know, one day I want to be one of these players. And you know, I think that having a youth academy with the, that was uh, connected to the team would make the team more ingrained in the community. And not only that, it would probably produce a lot more successful players and a lot fewer uh, one-and-done players, you know, one, players who just play come and play for one season. I just think that it's a good idea. While there are some successes like Detroit and Chattanooga, I think it's, for the majority of the clubs, it's a better model to be as, uh, affiliated with a youth, a youth program. See, and I... I'm less concerned about the one-and-done players, as you were saying, and more concerned about the one-and-done teams. Mm. And what what seems to be the case, and MP, all right, MP, let's start this way. NPSL is a very weird program in the way it goes, and it's grow soccer, grow soccer, grow soccer. They want to grow soccer. They want soccer to be bigger. And so for a while what they do is they just, anyone who had the money, here, have a team. 
But what I think what they're trying to do, I think in theory, what you're saying is correct. I think in theory, the idea of having the the U18s or the U17s or the U whatever play, and then go watch the senior team player say, "Hey, when I'm on vacation from college in the summer, I'm going to go play for the first team." I, I don't think that's going to necessarily work. I think the best way to do it is to have some sort of mix. Chattanooga, I said, does not or we're not founded upon a youth team. Now, there are clubs, uh, youth clubs in Chattanooga that now take the Chattanooga FC name. We're the Chattanooga FC Academy, which is not entirely true. And I, I don't know about Detroit or Tulsa, but I would imagine it's the same there. Meanwhile, in Huntsville, Alabama, another place where I'm sure you've never been, they have Rocket City United, which built its academy, or excuse me, which built its senior team upon the groundwork of their academy. Uh, same thing with the Georgia Revolution, which are in Conyers, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta. But none of those teams are financially viable teams. In fact, I'm not even sure Chattanooga or Detroit, actually I'm sure Detroit is, but I'm not sure that Chattanooga or Tulsa are financially viable teams. I'm sure both of them are still in the red, or if they are in the black, it's just very closely into the black. And it goes down to the same thing we were talking about when we were talking about Jacksonville, which is, where is the support coming from? Is this a family-friendly atmosphere or is this a supporters-driven atmosphere? I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong answer, a right or wrong way to agree or disagree with this one. I just think it's strange that they're not pushing for more teams like Detroit, Tulsa, and Chattanooga. Uh, there is one team uh, coming in, and I apologize, I don't know the difference between North or South Dakota. Uh, Fargo <laughs> FC, uh, is that North that's or South North, Dakota? That's North Dakota. That's North Dakota. I just know about the Coen Brother movie. Um, but they're, they're starting a team now, and their owner seems ready and willing to lose money, and they seem to be building something in Fargo, which will probably never get to the Detroit, Tulsa, Chattanooga level, or even the Des Moines Metis level, which is PDL, not NPSL. But that's going to be a standalone team which does relatively well. Most teams in NPSL, and I think this has a lot to do with the cost of building a team, they want to make sure you're not one and done, so they want to make sure you're part of a youth structure that already exists. I, I don't think it's the best way to go. I think they should be aiming more for standalone teams that show a willingness to lose money, although I don't really know how you judge whether you can do that or not. So speaking of um, young players who go on vac vacation during the summer from college... Uh, Ooh, nice day. That, that segue like a boss. Yeah, well, not really. Uh, segways are useless. Anyway, um, it was just announced, I think, recently, possibly by the player himself, possibly by Stanford. I can't remember that. Uh, uh, Seattle Sounders Youth Academy, Youth Academy um, uh, player and Stanford um, player and um, the first U.S. national team player to currently be enrolled in college in, what, uh, two decades or something like that, um, yeah. tur turned down an offer from MLS, and I, I'm assuming he had offers in Europe as well, uh, to go back to school for for his next year. And this player, of course, is Jordan Morris, um, who played in a recent friendly for the United States men's national team. Um, number Six on the first 11 says that uh, Jordan Morris is uh, turning down MLS's low ball offer to continue at Stanford. It's ridiculous, and it was reported, I think, that he was offered somewhere between forty dollars and $50,000 a year. I could be uh, wrong about that, but that's the figure I saw, sort of saw floating around on American soccer now. All right. Um, let me just say this. C-B-A. <laughs> You, you want to know why I'm excited about the CBA, which is coming up in, oh, so a few days. I just, I can't wait. It's because of this. It's because of stories like this. Um, you got to fix the super draft. You got to fix the homegrown system. You got to fix the way that a player who's been capped for the U.S. men's national team is in college gets paid. Uh, I don't know how you go about doing this. I don't know if it's realistic to imagine this, but they've got to find something to do. Now, on the other hand, Jordan Morris is caught in this situation where he can't win for losing. He's getting looked down upon for turning down a $50,000 offer to go to Stanford. Um, we're talking about Stanford here. This is not UC Berkeley. This is not, you know, some small little rink-a-dink school that no one cares about. We're not talking about, you know, go, I said Berkeley. I meant Santa Barbara. 
But either way. <laughs> I was so confused by, by that you analogy. Should, you should be. This is not this is this is think of it this way, Evan. Is Stanford a good college? Is Stanford good at providing secondary edu or excuse me, tertiary education to students? Yes. Are most Stanford graduates gonna make more than fifty thousand dollars a year when they graduate? Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't hear of any jobs being available in the economy right now. But I would say I would assume so. Yeah, uh, it's not ridiculous. Now, what I'm going to be curious about is: Does he now get the same treatment that players who are stuck in MLS and refuse to go overseas get from Jurgen Klinsmann? Does him refusing to turn pro mean no more call-ups for him? Because that's that's where this story really should be looking at: is the idea of he turned down going pro. He turned a day in, day out pro player to go to college. What's you? What do you say about that, Jurgen Klinsmann? What's your opinion? And I mean, lowball. It's fifty k. That's not enough money. That's not enough money to make me, you know, try to do something. So I, I doubt that someone's going to drop out of Stanford University, where he's going to get a uh, not a scholarship, where he's going to get a degree that's worth a lot more than fifty thousand dollars in the long run. Well. Two things really quick. One, I don't know why he was called up to the U.S. men's national team. I mean, obviously, he seems like a tremendous talent, but I don't know how there weren't a hundred better options than Jordan Morris to be called up. Um, the sec second thing that I wanted to bring up was just like the idea of forty or fifty thousand dollars. That that's not an actual uh, real number. Like, if if he gets signed by an MLS team, you know. He's not really paying for most for a lot of his meals. You know, the team provides a lot a lot of meals. He's not paying for any of his gear. He's probably barely paying for. I know that most uh, teams for the lower salary guys find them uh, housing with like three or four uh, roommates, and so he's not paying a ton for housing. I mean, forty thousand dollars, fifty thousand dollars for a Jordan Morris is not the same fifty thousand dollars it is for you or I. I just want to point that out. Like his fifty thousand dollars will go longer than than it will for us. So that's that's not even like an actual real number. If you when and then when you go and factor in the most contract MLS guys on. Uh, small contracts like that have, you know, appearance fees for. Uh, I believe that it, in the standard minimum contract in MLS, it, you get a thousand dollars for every start that you get, and five hundred dollars for every substitute appearance. At least that's what I've been told by um, a couple different, couple different sources. And so if that if that is the case, you know, he's he's making more money, right? He's making more money, and that I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the money has to do with it necessarily, but I just think that. Sometimes we have this idea that oh, like I can make fifty thousand dollars by doing this job. Well, no, I can't actually. I don't get you know a thousand dollars every time I show up for work, right? I don't. I don't get an appearance fee, right? I, no one comes come when I come into work every morning. Someone doesn't hand me a check that says you you showed up today, good job. You know, that doesn't happen yeah, for me. I look at that from another perspective, which is the idea of. MLS wants to have best amateur players. They want the best high school. They want the best uh, college players. But if you're not willing to pony up the money for them, then I'm sorry, but get the fuck out of here. Um, you're, you're looking at, I think a good fee for a first-year player in MLS is probably, let me rephrase that. I think a good fee for a player who's going to contribute in MLS, first year out of college, is somewhere between, and this is still not drastic money, 80 through 120K. That's what I think it should be. Forget about the appearance here. That should be your guaranteed fee. When you look back at Scott Caldwell, who was or Caldwell, who was signed by the New England Revolution out of Akron University as a homegrown player, grew up, I believe it was in Braintree, but I'm probably wrong about that. He made 45k his first year. I was shocked by that. Now I haven't seen his numbers on the latest salary, and I'm sure it's jumped drastically. But this is the guy who started in MLS Cup this year. This is the guy who started most of or not most of, but a lot of his rookie season, and now suddenly, and you know, 50k for that—that that's not fair. Even if he got, you know, an additional 12, 18, 20 thousand dollars for the starts, that's you know, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just not okay with that. If you want to build your team, you want to build the sport, you want the best amateur athletes, then you need to pay them like professionals. And I think that number starts at some place between 80 and 100k. And I agree. And really quick, um, I was just reading an article in the latest uh, World Soccer um, uh, about the league in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And this this is actually relevant because the author, uh, James Montague, who wrote um, 31 to Nil, with, which uh, Seth Maycomber and I both really liked, um, stated that 
most players in the Bosnian league earn some sort of compensa compensation between 500 euros and 1,500 euros a week, right? 500 euros a week is more, I think 500 euros a week would be something like 70 or $80,000, and that's like on the minimum scale, and that's for the Bosnian league, or in the Bosnian league, good crowds are like 5,000, 6,000, right? I don't know where their money is coming from or where, where um, or why the, the players in MLS aren't at the bottom of the pool aren't making as much money, but if the Bosnian league can pay their lowest paid players seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year, why can't MLS? Yeah, I don't know. All right, let's move on to number seven. Sticking in our sort of development lower division ranks, we're going to talk a little bit about Grand Rapids Football Club. Uh, Grand Rapids, much like Nashville FC, <clears throat> was trying to get a supporter-run club. They earned the money that they thought they would need, and were denied a place at the NPSL table. They were told, no, we don't want you here. One of the reasons they were given for why they were not going to be allowed a team was because of the, quote, disaster in Pensacola, end quote. Now, the people at Grand Rapids have said that they can go on to earn up to $200,000, and they still will probably not get into the NPSL. Number seven on the first 11 says, Grand Rapid FC being denied a place in NPSL is not good for Abram's ego. Well, there's only one person who can answer that question. All I know is that, you know, your, your ego is so astronomically high that um, uh, who knows if anything can hurt it, really. Right. Um, I, I'm not sure where to go with this. Uh, Nashville FC, I thought, had a relatively good season. They're not quite... As big as the three teams, which I always talk about, Detroit, Tulsa, Chattanooga, but they did relatively well in a pseudo-supporter-owned structure. I could get more into why I say pseudo and not actually supporter-owned, but I don't really want to talk about that right now. Um, I don't know why NPSL is denying anyone. NPSL likes to give out you know, teams like candy on Halloween or some other idiom. Why, why not give them a team? They, they earned the money. They did what they thought they had to do. And now because they're not part of a youth structure and because I made a lot of noise in Pensacola, you're not going to give them a team? And, and I, I, I don't even know where to go about this. It, it's not good for my ego because I feel kind of bad about it because I think they were going about building a team in the correct way. And now not giving it to them is sort of taking away any of these sort of more interesting ownership aspects that can happen in the fourth division. Let, let's just let me just put it this way: I don't think it was your fault. You think they're using me as a scapegoat? No, no. I just I, I don't think it, you matter as much as you think you do. <laughs> no, oh. uh, I, I don't know too much about the situation. That's all I can say. Well. And I, uh, that's the thing that I, what you said is sort of what I try to think back when I keep telling myself that, which is, you know, at the end of the day, I really don't matter at all. And that would make me feel better. But when they're, when what they said to the Grand Rapid people and what the Grand Rapid people were putting up on Reddit, what they were putting up on the email that they were sending out to their, the people who bought scarves from them to be owners, when they specifically mentioned the disaster in Pensacola, I, I mean, do you honestly think, and this is me sounding super, super egocentric, but would you have ever heard about that if it was not for me? Look, the most surprising thing out of anything you just told me was that you're you're 35 years old and you know how to use Reddit. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> but no, I wouldn't have. But um, so <laughs> within the within the last uh, week or so, um, New York Cosmos announced a uh, new signing, and the signing was, I believe, three three time MLS Cup finalists. Yeah, 2008, um, and then 11 and 12 with Houston Dynamo. Um, uh, three time MLS Cup finalist Adam Moffitt. Um, and allegedly, you know, no one picked him up in, well, not allegedly, no one picked him up in the expansion draft, so there's been speculation as to, um, you know, was he worth too much for his ability in MLS? So, and, I don't know, I guess we'll speak uh, speak onto that in a second. Number eight on the first 11 just says, really, Adam Moffitt? Really? Can, can I be straight? Let me be completely honest and frank about this. I do not care about Adam Moffitt. But he scores um, I don't goals. I don't, he does, but I don't think anyone in MLS is losing sleep over losing Adam Moffat to the New York Cosmos. 
They didn't lose an all-star. I'm not sure. I don't think he's ever been an all-star. I don't think no. he's ever been a first 11. I don't think he's ever been you – know, or sorry, not a first 11, a best 11. I, I don't think Adam Moffat at this point in his career really matters a whole lot. Um, I don't. I think uh, Carlos Mendez was a better signing than Adam Moffat. I think Danny Zatella was a better signing than Adam Moffat just because that brings up a little more attention, memory. I don't know what, how to put it. But I, I don't care. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't affect anyone a whole bunch. I think it's good for them. I think they're good at picking up slightly over-the-hill MLS players, which is what they should do and what they should be aiming to do to build the quality of that team. But at the end of the day, it's a non-story. Yeah, I just want the Cosmos to sign Freddie Adu. Yeah, they we should. And they should. And we they should. Do. And they should. Yeah, all right. So that's on me. All right. Uh, number nine. Ooh, I like this one. All right. So was it came out, and this was probably a good month ago, that USL Pro was going to petition the USSF to become the D2 in America. Um. Okay, USL Pro, you have an ego the size of mine. Uh, number nine on our first eleven says NASL is D two. Suck it, USL Pro. See, and I disagree with that because look, first of all, NASL, you, I mean NASL, is fairly fairly big, right? Obviously, um, the teams on average are more well supported than USL Pro teams, but on this side of the country, you literally hear nothing about. NASL, and that's because the westernmost NASL team, I believe, is FC Edmonton, which is the, cl the closest team to me. I live in Davis, California. Closest NASL team is FC Edmonton, which is, I think, 14,000... It's not 14,000 miles. 1,400 um, miles away from me. And that is... that the, the league just doesn't register at all here, right? And that's, that's a whole entire half of a country that doesn't register on. Furthermore, the reason why I don't think that... It's all um, black and white as to NASL being um, a better league than USL Pro is the situation that happened in, with um, Oklahoma City. And I don't even know if the Oklahoma City NASL team is going to happen. Um, they keep getting – they keep uh, – Press releases keep saying it's going to happen. I haven't followed the situation in a couple months, but there's allegedly the team was supposed to debut this year. I don't know if it's going to debut this year. I don't think it is. I haven't heard anything about it. All I know is that OKC Energy went in and did every single thing better, and now OKC Energy is all we hear about. We don't hear about the unnamed um, OKC NASL team. Furthermore, you have the whole Virginia Cavalry debacle. I mean, NASL team can't even get teams to join its league, where USL Pro just got like 14 expansion teams. I don't know. It just seems like right now USL Pro has MLS MLS backing, which is important, and it has more teams, right, which are, for the most part, uh, less visible right now. I mean, obviously, uh, San Antonio Scorpions, New York Cosmos, the, those are fairly big franchises. But, I mean, at what point do we just not realize that USL Pro is just run a lot better than NASL is? I don't know. Uh, yeah. I, I don't like the wording of that. I don't think it is run better, and I think it's just it's run differently. Okay. And I'm not sure that the backing of NASL, or excuse me, I'm not sure the backing of MLS is as big a deal as you make it out to be. This is turning into more or less a reserve league or, you know, minor league baseball. The MLS is major league baseball. You when they had that split for, uh, into what was it USL and USL two or USSF two? I can't remember exactly what the terms were originally when they first had their split, but there was structures come up with to sort of build the ownership, and this is the rules that the owners had to have. And I don't think USL Pro matches a lot of those teams, maybe not all of them, but I don't think most of those teams match the ownership requirements for Division Two in the United States based on what the USSF said. This is NASL, furthermore, it's a non-reserve league. Now, you did bring up the good point, which is the idea of the closest team to you being FC Edmonton. Now, Allegedly, again, this is allegedly. There's going to be an LA team. Eric Ronaldo is somehow involved with it, and I, you know, there are memes going around about Kim Kardashian being involved in it. I have no idea if that was serious or just some funny meme that someone shot out there. But NASL has built itself into a position where San Antonio is an important team, Ottawa is an important team, Minnesota is an important team. Uh, Cosmos, based on the fact that they're an American soccer institution, they're an important team. Now, the Silverbacks are as big as everyone had hoped they would be, and that whole debacle in Virginia and that whole debacle in Oklahoma City are not good on the, over, the, the standard of 
what you should expect out of them. SC Edmonton is, you know, it's an average run-of-the-mill team, but is it any different than the Colorado Rapids or the New England Revolution before this year in MLS? No, probably not. But when you look at USL Pro and you look at the fact that a team like the Dayton Dutch Lions barely post 200 people a fan or 200 people a game, that and then just sort of disappears. That's not a good thing. That's not something that you would expect out of your D2. D2 should be used partially for development, but the overall structure of D2 is to, uh, is to build a competitive league. And I don't think USL Pro is building a competitive league. They're building a league where you get, what is it, six substitutes a game, and there's three games on a weekend, and you're mostly MLS reserves, and half your teams are going to be MLS, you know, LA to Portland to Seattle to Toronto to Real Salt Lake to. I don't think any of that is good for building the pyramid, or I don't think any of that, forget about the pyramid, because let's be honest, there is no pyramid in the United States. I don't think any of that is good for a solid D2. I think NASL is, has much better standing to be that second division than does USL Pro. I, I agree in that sense, but until um, until until uh, NASL, um, obviously they already have, but figuratively crosses the Mississippi, right? Even though clearly San Antonio is west of the Mississippi. Um, I think Minnesota is too. Yeah, but until 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 it gets to the whole half of the country that it's not that it's not uh, relevant in right now, I don't I, I don't think it's a stable one hundred percent you know um, sure thing that is going to retain D two status. Nah, I disagree, and I think okay. you're stupid, and I think well, you're a USL pro bot. Well, <laughs> I'm a USL pro and MLS bot. But you know, even though you're right about NASL for soccer by Ives. <laughs> so oh, let me um, get that name I just dropped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me pick it up too. All right. So <laughs> we talked earlier about some some English uh, star star. I don't know. Some guy in England who never really performed on the international stage as well as he should have, and who couldn't play with a certain other new MLS. Uh, rumored MLS signing, and, and we talked about how that was just a complete fiasco, and we want to talk about the flip side of things, right? You know, New York City FC is coming into the league next year, and it's probably getting a, it's getting a lot more national and international publicity than the other expansion team, Orlando City Soccer Club. Now, Orlando City Soccer Club, despite having less publicity, might be on the track to have a more successful uh, first year. So number 10 on the first 11 says, uh, Orlando City Soccer Club, an expansion team that doesn't lie to its fans, mostly because it already has fans. <laughs> I'm sorry, I like that one. Um, I'm, I'm going to just bring this immediately down to um, where I wanted to go with this, is the idea that you need to have a team, or at least the, the, the direct calling for a team before you get a team. Um, Jesus, I mean, what... All right, Orlando signed Kaká. They've signed, you know, uh, I believe he's a Honduran striker whose name I'm blanking on right now. They signed Tally Hall and Donovan Ricketts, and they got Amobi Akugo. They've built a solid roster. They've built a solid roster. And New York City FC has, you know, claimed to sign some players. And then we find out that they didn't sign those players. I mean, we knew we knew from the beginning that Orlando City was – minimally going to have 5,000 people there every game. We just knew that. They didn't need to sign anyone. They could, have, they could have shown up with their USL Pro roster, gotten destroyed game in, game out for 34 games, and they still would have drawn 5,000 people no matter what. Maybe even 8,000 people no matter what. They may have even drawn 10,000 just because they're moving up to USL or to MLS. Then they went out and signed Kaká. That's you know he's he's worth another two three four thousand people and then they they're known in the Orlando area and they're building a they're excuse me building their soccer specific stadium. Now, New York City FC started with zero fans. Why did they start with zero fans? Because there was zero team. Uh, they are going to play in Yankee Stadium. Then they said they'd sign David Villa. I'm not really sure how well he sells to non you know non-supporters of soccer, uh, whatever. Um, Lampard is going to sell tickets, and they sold 11,000 tickets mostly on his name. 
and he doesn't play for them, nor is he signed for them. To me, this signing is was clearly a, a grasp at getting interest, getting fan, being relevant in the market, and Orlando City did the exact same things, except they didn't lie to people about it because they didn't need to lie to you about it because they already had people who support them. The, the funny thing is that uh, we have this idea of plastic fans, you know, fans who are just, oh, my God, I'm like, you know, this team hasn't been with them the whole their whole lives, right? You know, it's not like when you grow up in the Bronx, right, which I've never done, so I don't know why I'm making this uh, analogy, but if you grow up in the Bronx, right, and you're always a Yankees fan, you know, the Yankees have been around for, there's so much history, there's so much history. Well, you know, you don't have any history with New York City Football Club, and the funny thing is, is the first thing that, pretty much the first thing that they've done is lied to their fans, right? So that's the history that there is. But the idea of plastic fans, um, the thing is, at least when Chivas USA existed, it was like a brand because Chivas de Guadalajara was a brand, right? Manchester City's not really a brand. Manchester City, 10 years ago, was completely irrelevant on the world scale until they got bought. You know, it was the same, same with PSG. You know, it wasn't a big team. It wasn't a big club. Manchester City is not Manchester United. It's not Liverpool. It's not Arsenal. Manchester City isn't even Tottenham, you know? It's not a big team in the world. It is now, but it's only been for five, six years. So the funny thing is is that is that we have this new team which is uh, supported by a brand and that brand isn't e doesn't even have a ton of history other than, you know, like dropping back to the, down to the second division a bunch of times and employing Claudio Reyna for a little bit. I just, it, none of this makes sense. I really think that Orlando City, Orlando City's, like, three or four years of history are already more significant to their fans than Manchester City's entire history are to New York City FC fans. But, but if it makes you feel good because these two teams are coming in at the same time, they've both sort of signed big stars and they're being compared against each other, it's clearly going to be a rivalry. I hope so. I like rivalries. Yeah, I love rivalries. All right. Uh, let's, I think we both relatively agree on that one, so go fuck yourself, yeah. New York City. <laughs> um, anyway, oh, and I've closed the Google Doc, so you get to introduce the last one. All right, so I don't actually know what any of these are. I know that um, you've been a supporter since the start. You're photographed, uh, <laughs> photographed uh, with a scarf that allegedly you you tried to hold upside down a bunch of times. Um, but they yet to be named um, at 2017 MLS expansion into Atlanta, um, which is uh, run by an owner who you have no idea how to pronounce his name. It's Arthur Blank, um, by the way. Arthur um, Blanks. Author blanks, yes, which allegedly has already 14, I heard 14,000 season ticket deposits, which would be, like, insane. Uh, and, and, I mean, I think they're going for big capacity. Like, I think the, the stadium's going to shrink down to 28,000. So if they could get 28,000 sold out, that'd be huge for the league. But, um, and I don't know any of these names, so why don't you go to introduce them? Number 11 of the first 11 just says that every proposed name for the Atlanta MLS team is terrible. Right. So you have... This is, these are all from the MLS website, you know, where everyone goes okay. for soccer news in America. So there are the Atlanta Bantams. What does a that Bantam mean? Is a small, means small, angry chickens. The Black okay. Hearts, heart as in, you know, stag or deer. Uh, Atlanta Empire, because Georgia is apparently the Empire State of the South, or excuse me, Georgia is the Empire State of the South. As someone who's lived in the South now for the better part of a decade, I've never heard that before. Here's a question, really um, quick, before you say the names to the other names. Atlanta Empire, is that in any way, could that in any way be construed as somewhat sympathizing with the Confederacy or somewhat racist? Oh, I it, just, hope it, is. It, it, it seems like it to me. Is that I mean I wouldn't have I wouldn't want to say if I was from the South, I wouldn't want to talk about an empire that I built. That's just me. I, I just see that just seems like it's a bad precedent to set. But continue. I'm sorry. So then you've got the, the Firebirds, Atlanta Firebirds, or Firebirds Atlanta, because, you know, Phoenix. Okay. Um, the Atlanta Kings. <laughs> the Atlanta Locomotives. Let, let me just, I would be perfectly okay with Locomotive Atlanta. Yes. But lo Atlanta Locomotives, no. And lo Locomotives Sorry. spelled like the Russian way with, oh, like a, K, with a K. Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, the Railrunners. Okay. Because screw you, Carolina Railhawks. And Resurgence. I guess Atlanta Resurgence? I don't know. 
Are we like twenty years past Americanizing soccer team names? Like at least. Yeah, why not just be Atlanta Soccer Club or Soccer Club Atlanta or Atlanta FC or FC Atlanta? Now this is just the list that MLS has. Apparently on the Terminus Legion uh, website, I'm I'm clicking on it right now. There's a list. Oh, there's the Atlanta Outcasts. <laughs> oh, I would be totally for the Atlanta Outcasts. You make Andre three thousand a minority owner. Absolutely. That'd be great. That'd be great. All right, all right. Let me let me just go with some of the other ones that are there. Sorry, I haven't looked. I've gone to the Terminus Legion website. Uh, Atlanta Legion, Terminus FC or FC, Dogwood City, FC or FC. I have no idea what that refers to. No, me either. Centennial Atlanta, which is terrible. How are you going to base your whole team around the Olympics? Uh, Atlanta Highlanders. Dude, Atlanta, there can only be there can only be one of those teams. <laughs> Sorry. Atlanta United. No. Atlanta Phoenix, Atlanta Romer, Atlanta Out. I'm all about Atlanta. Okay, let me see. i got to log in. Yeah, I'm a member of Terminus Legion for now because I wanted their scarf, so I had to pay for it. So I am voting for Atlanta Outcasts right now. But let me <laughs> no, just get it done. It's got to be Locomotive Atlanta, and then Locomotive Absolutely. Atlanta can play, can play the Houston Dynamo every year in the uh, Soviet Cup. <laughs> They're terrible. All right, so I guess we are wrapping up our first ever live episode of First Eleven, which was may or may not be a failure, and God knows how this will sound once I uh, edit this mofo down into one coherent or pseudo-coherent thing, but I think we've gone for about an hour and a half, and yeah. we maxed out at, uh, we're currently at two viewers right now, so you I'm and me, sorry. there you go, buddy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was great listening to, to myself talking and right. zoning out at you, you speaking. <laughs> Any, anything you'd like to plug this week, Evan? I don't know if you even write anymore. Oh, uh, yeah. Dude, it's, uh, it's a weird off-season right now. I'm, I'm covering, like, wrestling for the local newspaper and some uh, some NCAA basketball, actually. So it's, it's weird. It's odd. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> my soccer stories have uh, been at a lull. So uh, check back with me in two to three months. Yeah. But only, only thing I'm plugging is that... Actually, let me plug two things. One, scarves are awesome. Buy a scarf. All right. And two, uh, Pick Up Soccer, I think, is going to be on tonight. I don't know if Evan's going to be on there or not. I have no I idea. Gotta, i got to run right now. My children. Oh, see, Evan's got to exercise. So rate and review us on Stitcher. Rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, like us on Facebook. Like us on Twitter. We're at First Eleven Pod. Like the network. We're at B-A-A-S-T. This has been an episode. Who friggin' cares? It's the First Eleven Podcast. And we're sorry. <laughs>